You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Diane Coyle, who's a professor of public policy at Cambridge University, and also the author of multiple books, most recently a book called Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, also The Soulful Science, What Economists Really Do and Why It Matters, also one of my favorites, GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History, also Markets, States, and People, Economics of Enough, and plenty of other writing. Thank you so much for joining me, Diane. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So your writing, it's its interesting because it seems like on the one hand, you are very, very critical of economics, or at least you articulate the criticisms of economics very, very well. But at the end of the day, you are one of our best defenders. <laughs> you know, you're one of the folks that are out there in the world telling everybody that economics is this wonderful field that's flourishing, that's interdisciplinary, that's borrowing the best from other fields and putting it together into this melange of interesting insights about the world. And I'm wondering, what is it about economics that provokes so much antagonism, not just in other academic disciplines, but but also, you know, in, in the general public? And I feel like it's partly because we've all ingested economics. We're all economists now. We sort of have this this ambiguous relationship with this thing that we've all we've all kind of turned into. And so I want to ultimately go back and, and talk about your time at Harvard, because I think when you were at Harvard, it was kind of the, the high point of the things that maybe you and I both find to be most limiting about economics. But we've come such a long way since those days. It's a really interesting question you raise, Greg. I trained as an economist. I identify as an economist. It's also a subject that lots of people quite rightly have opinions about because the decisions that are influenced by economic thinking and economic advice affect people's everyday lives in really important ways. And so inflation matters, what the Fed does to interest rates really matters to people's standards of living. So I care a lot about communicating about economics. We can't have this as an internal debate and have to engage with the public. And being honest about what the limitations are of the subject, but also what progress it's made. And as you say in the question, there are lots of critiques of economics. And some of those frustrate me because they just misfire. Things like criticising it for having too much math. Well, you know, physics has a lot of math too, and that doesn't mean that you think it's a rubbish subject. That's a tool. And any discipline has models for making sense of a complex world. So economics has models, but so does history and so does English or critical studies. So those critiques really annoy me. There's a newer kind of critique that I think is about the fact that the economy that we have isn't serving people very well or not serving a lot of people very well that median wages haven't been going up, people's living standards haven't been improving. I'm not on top of the latest US figures, but here in the UK, wages, real wages have fallen for the longest period since the Napoleonic Wars. We've never had a period of such stagnation since the dawn of capitalism. So it's hardly surprising that people are critical about the economic system as it is operating, and I think that that gets projected onto economics. 
So, so to pick up on the last part of what you were saying, the subject has changed an awful lot. And one of the big changes was reflected in the latest Nobel Prize Award, which was for applied microeconomics techniques and using that to address questions that many people might think were social policy and not to, to do with economics at all. But we've got data, we've got techniques, we've got much more powerful computers. We can really make progress in understanding some things about matters of great interest to lots of people. As you say, I was at Harvard in the early part of the 1980s. It was the high point of the very austere free market version, rational expectations, markets operate without frictions, the ups and downs of business cycles reflect the fact that wages aren't adjusting properly and if you've fixed that, everything would be self-correcting. In my day, we still had compulsory economic history courses, but I think they went pretty soon afterwards. And so there was a period then when, you know, actually the discipline became very narrow uh, and we might talk about the problems that you and I discern there. But it's been, that was the, the high point and the tide turned then and it's been changing ever since. So although I think there are things still wrong, things that we really need to improve, that period has somehow marked popular perceptions in a way that I, that I think is now incorrect. Well, I think it's marked it in a couple ways. On the one hand, in terms of methodologies, but also there's this belief that economists have certain normative principles, not only about how individuals should behave, but sort of how the world ought to be organized and, and regulated from a policy perspective. And I think those are both inaccurate descriptions of how economists think and practice. But, you know, if we go back to those those times, and I, I was an undergraduate in, in the early 80s and a graduate student in kind of late 80s, early 90s, and I experienced a similar frustration with, with economics, and it seemed like all the interesting things were being ignored. You know, I wound up studying history and political science and psychology and, and all these other disciplines. While people talk about economic imperialism and how all these other disciplines started copying economics, I, I think it's really more that economics has in, ingested so much from these other disciplines. And now, of course, you know, we have behavioral economics. I mean, economic history is not quite as popular as some would like it, but, you know, we have institutional economics. You know, we have a focus on information asymmetries. We, we have uh, a focus on, on coordination problems. We, we've incorporated insights from evolution into game theoretic models. It seems like economics is it's a big tent. You can ingest all sorts of insights because what economics is fundamentally about modeling. And I love your example. You say that the ideal model is like the the, the map of the tube, right? And and so what does a bad model look like? If a good model is the, the tube, and remember, the, I guess the tube is not a perfect representation of the world. It's a simplification of the world. And in order to understand the world, you have to simplify it. But what, what constitutes a bad model? That's a great question. And so one thing would be that it gets some of the lines in the wrong place without really diagnosing what kinds of assumptions underlie the model. So you can just mm. you can just get them wrong or you can oversimplify and leave out something. The world is incredibly complicated and it may be that the simple models that some economists like to use are just leave out too many important things. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is a sort of implicit sense of what causal relationships there are. Mm. I've been working on well-being policy, the idea that governments should target well-being rather than growth in GDP, which makes sense to a lot of people and is becoming more widespread in policy in many countries. 
New Zealand even has a formal well-being budget. And that stems from research that links certain measures of well-being that are asked in surveys econometrically to all kinds of indicators, income, unemployment, do you take part in religious ceremonies, are you married, you know, do you have to commute, and, and so on. All very plausible things. Two things bother me about it as a model. One is that its measure of well-being is defined by social scientists. And if you ask people in specific contexts what affects their well-being, they won't necessarily, in fact, rarely will they come up with the questions that, that get asked in the surveys. So if you stop and think about, if you were asked to, to rate on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your life satisfaction? Well, how would you begin to answer that and what do those figures mean? So it's partly what actually constitutes the data, because one of my obsessions is that data are not things that are given, they're things that are made, they're social constructs. And then the other thing is, all of those correlations are, are quite robust, and they've been established in different countries, sometimes at different spatial scales, different time periods. But what about what gets left out? Mm -hmm. That your house might flood, that the country might go to war. And so it seems to me to lack actually a theory of what drives well-being, which involves much closer work with psychologists than has actually been undertaken so far. And so models can get embedded and close down questions about that complex reality that they're trying to represent and influence. It seems like you're taking an approach to well-being that's similar to the approach you took to GDP, right, in your book. And there is this obsession with GDP, and, and not just among economists, certainly journalists and the general public. Throughout the coronavirus crisis, we've been seeing all sorts of commentary on what's happening to the economy. And, and when we, we talk about what's happening in the economy, we're generally talking about GDP. And, and I always found this a little bit puzzling, in part because... You know, all, all of these plexiglass barriers, that's GDP. <laughs> all of these vaccines are, are, are GDP, and, and all of the, the testing that happens is GDP. And, and while I guess it's welfare-enhancing compared to not having that stuff, perhaps if we had no virus to begin with, <laughs> it would be better off. That's just one of the many critiques of GDP. So what are we fundamentally missing when we focus on on GDP? Is it just that Global warming hits, so we got air conditioning, and then all of a sudden our GDP goes up. You know, we buy cars that sit on the driveway and never go anywhere, and that's that's GDP. Is it, is it because of the disconnect between GDP and what we might think of as subjective well-being, or do the problems run deeper than that? It's sort of back to the future with economic measurement and the debates between Simon Kuznets and the people who were actually constructing what became GDP at, at the, about the extent to which it should be a measure of economic welfare or a measure of certain kinds of economic activity and transactions. And we ended up with the latter. But what we really care about in policy and policy making people's lives better is the former, we care about economic welfare. And things are changing. So a measure like GDP that was a poor measure of economic welfare, but the extent to which it failed didn't change very much over time, so you could look at its growth reasonably as a, an indicator. Well, that's now that's now shifting for several reasons. One is that the environmental crisis has become more immediate in its impact. And people have been pointing out since the 1970s that GDP omitted a lot of environmental externalities and depletion of resources that we really ought to care about. So that's now those chickens are coming home to roost. Another is digital, fundamentally changing the structure of what we do every day, how we spend our time, how companies operate their business models and make their profits, which is invisible 
in the economic statistics. One, but one of the things it's doing is, is shifting activities from one side of the production boundary where they get counted to another where they don't get counted. And those shifts are making it hard to understand what's really happening to productivity and, and people's well-being. So one example I've been thinking about recently is those machines in supermarkets now where you scan your own groceries mm -hmm. and put them away yourself. So we've gone from the old-style supermarkets where there's a little bit of capital equipment in the form of a conveyor belt and a till, and somebody scans the items and somebody packs the bag for you. So it's paid for labour and a little bit of capital. And now we have these machines that are much more sophisticated capital with software embedded that can tell whether you're trying to steal things, and we provide the free labour to operate those. And now there are more shops where you just walk out with things because you've scanned a QR code as you go in, and we've got incredibly sophisticated capital, particularly intangible capital, and no labour. You just walk out with your goods. So the, the model, the production function, has changed completely, and the way those different aspects fall into our economic measurement categories means that we, we just can't tell whether the productivity has increased or not or whether people's well-being has been increased by this change in the way that we shop or not. So, so that's going on as well. And then there's the pandemic. You know, it's been a major event and we're going to see for years to come the effect it has on people's mental health and psychological well-being. But we want to think about economic welfare compared to the counterfactual. So you can't compare what happens now to what happened in 2019. We're looking at what happens with all the things that we do, including the vaccine and the plexiglass, compared to what would have happened if we were in a pandemic and we didn't do all of those things. So, you know, the policy assess assessment is about counterfactuals in that case. So, so it's a great time to be interested in economic yeah. measurement. I do sense that things are shifting. So, so GDP, on the one hand, is, is it underestimates welfare in some sense, right? If we think about, yeah. I just read an article that the computer that I had in 1990, I think it said it would take 560,000 years to mine a Bitcoin. Right? <laughs> and that, that computer cost me $3,000 back in 1990. And, you know, I know that there's all sorts of efforts to use hedonic modeling to kind of reflect that. But I don't think, I mean, that would mean that that, that computer would be worth a penny now. I mean, it would cost a penny to compute that, to calculate that. So in some sense, we're, we, we can't possibly capture those increases in productivity. But on the other hand, we overestimate welfare. So as soon as someone goes from doing domestic work to work outside of the household, we see this massive bump in, in GDP, even though, you know, the person's presumably doing the same amount of work. So which is the bigger danger? Are we overestimating or underestimating growth when we think about those two, two things? I don't think it's a unidimensional issue, and so there isn't a single answer that I can give you. We're trying to capture in one number a set of complicated changes, and I don't really think that can be done. So my halfway house at the moment is to think about a balance sheet, attach a balance sheet to the national accounts, which is the direction that the current revision of the system of national accounts is going. And then at least we know what's happening to natural resources, um, or, or we can look at different slices through the economy, look at what's happening to culture or tourism. You know, you can apply different lenses depending on what you're interested in. So the other direction to come at it is, is and it's why I'm interested in well-being, is to start to think more about how is people's well-being affected by things like medical innovations. Mm -hmm. And the approach there, and I'm working with Leonard Nakamura from the Philadelphia Fed on this, is to think about how people use their time. 
and what's the value they assign to that time. If you think about something like getting your varicose veins fixed, then the increase in welfare from the fact that you can go as an outpatient and it happens very quickly and you go home straight away, that's tremendous. And so the productivity gain there is that something that took five days in hospital and a lot of pain is a half a day. But then there are other things like being a COVID patient seriously ill where you really want the eight members of the team in intensive care spending as much time as they can possibly spend on you. And it's the quality and skill applied to the time that become the metrics there. So we've all got 24 hours. We spend them doing something. It's an identity. You can't save any of your 24 hours up for later. And so trying to parcel out welfare by thinking about time spent and the value of the time spent seems quite a promising avenue. But I, I don't have answers. Other people may have better answers than this, and it's an area of growing interest, I think. I think your your biggest critique in Cogs and Monsters is this idea of performativity and how economists, they often claim to be simply observing the world or interpreting the world, but they're necessarily impacting the world. And, and it's not just that they have implied normativity, it's just that the mere act of measuring things is going to influence the world. An example of that is, you know, GDP. Once we start measuring GDP, it, it starts to become an objective for policymakers. Yes. If it's unavoidable, then what do we do about that? Do we just have to embrace it? I mean, you mentioned Esther Duflo, and, you know, she says economists are, are like plumbers. You know, go in there and, <laughs> you know, we know, how to, we know how to fix toilets and so forth. But presumably, plumbers also the way a toilet is, is supposed to work. Just like, you know, Keynes said economists are like dentists. I mean, dentists have some idea of what functioning teeth are. <laughs> they know, you know, this is a cavity. It needs to be fixed. But if you're purely positive and, and you don't have any kind of normativity, then can you be a good dentist? I mean, if you don't know the difference between a cavity and being a bad thing and an intact tooth being a good thing, are you just simply the instrument of policymakers. This is a, a tricky path to navigate. And I guess I think the best that we can do is try to be objective, but be aware of the dangers. And a lot of economists are very resistant to the idea that you can't have objective answers, that you cannot discover what works. And so there are the metaphors like plumbers or engineers or dentists. Dentists was Keynes. Of course, there may be things that we can say are true or not true. Actually, I think the ability to identify causal relationships is actually overstated, particularly in macroeconomics, as I talk about in the book, where you, almost always you bring in your identifying assumptions from outside the model, from the hypotheses that you, that you build in, into your model. But then there are other circumstances where, if you're thinking about what will increase increasing a certain tax due to purchases of certain goods you can get reasonably objective answers to that kind of question. I think it has been damaging that we insist there is no, that we are not interested in ethics, that we are just doing the objective stuff, because that's clearly not always true. And it's clearly not always true because, and, and again, especially in macro, you get political debates, you get people who are on one side of the party divide or the other, and they shout at each other. They've got different arguments about how the economy operates and what policies ought to be, that's not a realm that's objective. And that's the kind of economics that most people see when they watch the news or, or go onto social media. So we want economists to try to be impartial and objective, 
do the best they can, but be aware of the risks and, and the limitations of that. And I, I think that's the best. We're never, ever going to be either moral philosophers with a sideline in numbers or, or purely objective people who can determine what, what works in all circumstances. Life isn't like that. And I think that the general public has a very skewed view of what economists do. If you watch television or read newspaper, everybody's talking about growth and, and inflation. And, you know, these are generally considered macroeconomics. And I think in the book, you recount a story where some macroeconomist was giving you a hard time for dismissing the entire discipline. Right? And of course, you, you weren't obviously dismissing the, the entire discipline. But what is it about the popular conception of what economists do that is so inaccurate? I mean, why is it that the public is given this very distorted view of the profession? Yes, yeah, I'm not sure I, I entirely know the answer to that. I mean, it's, it's partly what they see on the news when they turn on the TV in the evening. And often it's somebody who works in the financial markets talking about the kinds of things that financial markets are trying to predict second mm -hmm. by second. That's very dominant. And, and uh, I've done some work in schools over the years to try to encourage young women to go into economics because it's a very male-dominated profession. And they particularly, well, both they and, and the boys in the class take away the idea that what economics is about is going to work on Wall Street or in the city here mm -hmm. and making a lot of money. They think it's about money. And I think that's the dominant perception that people have. Money is a metric. We use it quite a lot, but it's not really what economics is about. But also I think there's this, this perception that economists are part of this technocratic class, right, which is anti-populist. And, and you set up in the book, you talk about this divide between populists and, and the technocrats. And the technocrats are always advocating for things like free trade. And, you know, they have certain beliefs about what is, is good for the economy, or at least that's, that's the perception. Is there merit to that? You mentioned that when you were in university, there was this consensus around the Reagan-Thatcher free markets approach to things. And I think that that's probably if most people, at least in the popular political domain, were to think about what economists favored. They would favor you know, as much free trade as possible, and, you know, they oppose the minimum wage and, and so forth. But if you're purely in the positive domain, then all you, you would do, presumably, is say, hey, if you do this, this is going to be the consequence. During the whole COVID crisis, we've had epidemiologists. An epidemiologist, technically, all they should be doing is saying, you know, if you do this policy, you will get this result. But ultimately, they're not the ones, or at least shouldn't be the ones, that are making the policy decisions. Why do we think that economists, do we think they're more normative than they really are? Or are economists necessarily going to be required to come out with some kind of normative position in these debates? I think we often fool ourselves as economists by talking about this concept of economic efficiency. And so generally, if you're working in economic policy, You've been socialised into a, a way of thinking about the world, which is that you start from the assumption that markets work well. And there's a series of assumptions behind that, which don't often get queried. And you might look for a market failure where a government intervention can make something happen better. But then, as you say, you'd often end up with diagnoses like we should liberalise trade because freer trade is better. Or we should not be really cautious about increasing the minimum wage. 
And because that's, well, first of all, that's seen as reform, a good thing to do. And it's a good thing to do if you're ruling out any consideration about distributional changes between different groups of people, because the concept of efficiency that we use is a very bizarre one. It isn't like an engineer saying, this is the most efficient way to get the oil through the pipeline. It's, this is a situation where nobody can be made better off without somebody else being made worse off. But my goodness me, there's no public policy environment or context in which you're not talking about making some people worse off. You can't judge between policies if you're not prepared to do that. So this sense that, you know, we can say this is a, a, a good reform to do if only the politicians would implement it, that means it's a really bad analysis, something that can't be imp implemented because it will harm too many people in a political constituency is never going to get implemented and it's not a good way to do the analysis. So, so I, I, I do think we, f we fool ourselves in that sense. Well, I think one of the points in the book is that welfare economics is really not something that's taught anymore and it's not considered to be a major part of the economics discipline. But in a way, you know, we're all doing welfare economics. We, we just pretend like we're not. I mean, I think that's what you're saying. And maybe we should yeah. be more explicit about it and, and actually revitalize that field and, and bring it out into the open. Why do you suppose, well, what happened to welfare economics? Why did this disappear as a mainstream part of, of the profession? I'm not sure why. It's a very good history of thought question. And I was taught a little bit of it as an undergraduate by my fantastic tutor. But the key texts, even now, date from the late 1970s. I don't think there's anything, any substantial classic welfare economics text since then. And it's absolutely ready for a reboot. We're going to hold a workshop on it with some colleagues in Oxford and the LSE later this year for that very reason. And one of the urgent reasons for needing this is actually the way the economy has changed. You know, I just mentioned a, a moment ago that the, the way that we interpret efficiency depends on a series of assumptions. So the presumption that markets are better than anything else depends, among other things, on the assumption that there are constant returns to scale in the economy, that people have fixed preferences, that they don't influence each other in their choices. And these were not good assumptions, and these were not empirically good assumptions at the best of times, and they are less and less true in the economy now. In a period of innovation, it's ridiculous to talk about fixed preferences. And the whole of Madison Avenue, of course, is built around the idea that you can manipulate people's preferences. And so we're seeing all these new goods and services emerging. And the extent of the increasing returns to scale in the economy is now phenomenal. It was always true with aerospace or auto, but it's now true with pretty much every startup where their services, a lot of the assets are intangible. Almost all the upfront cost is going, going to be fixed cost and there are huge increasing returns to scale. So the digital platforms come into the market and they want to, they want to conquer the globe um, because that's the way that they'll, they'll get their average cost down as far as possible. So we need a different kind of benchmark framework, which is an increasing returns to scale social economy, everybody wired together by social media, and think about what does welfare economics look like in that context. And actually, I think we have to jettison a lot of the apparatus we have now for thinking about it. I mean, it is weird when you think about it. You start your undergraduate economics and you're shown an indifference curve and it's all about utils. I've never seen, seen a util in the wild. <laughs> and, and then we stop thinking about it. You just grow so used to thinking in those terms that you don't interrogate it anymore. And yet, 
Things like monetary policy depend on looking at inflation rates, which are calculated on the basis that that's the price change that keeps utility constant of some disembodied consumer halfway between this year and last year. It's actually very weird. Well, isn't behavioral economics a foundation for a new welfare economics? I mean, behavioral economics is usually concerned with individual choice in, in a very narrow setting, but they do have some implied welfare claims. The idea that when people are acting and they're making decisions, I don't think a behavioral economist is shy about saying, hey, you know, that person is, is doing something that is contrary to their best interest or is contrary to their kind of true long-term preferences. So in a sense, they're doing welfare economics. They're just doing it at the micro level. So is what you're calling for perhaps incorporating the welfare notion into a new macroeconomics? I don't think so. I mean, there are some good things about behavioral economics, and including in particular the acknowledgement of social influences and social norms, and that's really healthy. I've got two reservations about it. One is that it's still got this assumption about true long-term preferences. It's just that we don't know them. There's an economist in a white lab coat who knows better than we do what's good for us. And, and that does trouble me. And the other is that I don't think we actually know when the behavioural assumptions about behaviour operate. And I've been much influenced by something called biological markets theory. There's a load of experiments that are showing that pigeons, rats, fungi, any natural entity which is trying to maximise its access to energy under constraint acts like the perfect economic agent in the rational expectations model. And that says to me that there's something about understanding context to understanding how people behave. I love the book Scarcity a few years ago by Sendil Nathan and Eldar Shafir, really focused attention on how much bandwidth people have when they're under stress from poverty. And where they're focusing their bandwidth, they are incredibly maximising and rational. But that means that they don't have the attention to think about other things and act irrationally in other ways. So I would want us to understand much better the importance of context before embracing anything from behavioural economics totally. You mentioned in the book this idea of reflexivity, and I, I wanted to dig into that a little bit. The example that you use is sort of a canonical example is the options markets and how as soon as the Black-Scholes model was developed, all of a sudden you'd see the prices in the markets converge <laughs> around what the model says that, that they're going to be. So when you start making predictions about the world, the predictions actually become self-fulfilling to some extent. How pervasive is this? And to the extent that it is pervasive, what does that say about the responsibility of economists or social scientists in general? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. I, I think it's more widespread than is often realised. And Bob Schiller's book on narrative has some other examples from macro. The self-fulfilling character of a recession would be one example. So financial markets have many great examples. There's, slightly outside of economics, an example like the Y2K bug, the millennium bug, if you remember, when we expected that nuclear power stations would explode and planes would fall out of the sky when the clock turned from 1999 into 2000 because of the way the computers had been programmed. And that didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen was because it was self-averting. The fear of it had led computer engineers to put many, many person hours into sorting out the problems in the code. And as it turned out, there were very few problems. I guess as media saturate our lives through people spending hours a day on social media, 
the scope for more of those self-fulfilling and self-averting phenomena is becoming ever greater. And I sometimes wonder about about data, the data economy. And there's a lot of interest in understanding how to value these assets, which you know companies clearly prize greatly, affects their stock market valuations greatly. But what is a unit of data and how do you begin to price that? And if you look at even quite well-known examples like personal credit data, they don't list prices. You can't go to the website and say 10,000 records, that'll be X. You have to ring up. And that tells me as a former competition regulator, that they are testing what the market will bear. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's market power there. But it could be that somebody will come up with a formula for pricing data records. And if they do, my goodness, I think that market will converge on, on whatever formula because it is mm-hmm. so rootless. And then that enables the market to grow. The options market was minuscule before we had the Black-Scholes formula. If you're evaluating somebody for credit and your model says that they're bad credit risk, you're going to charge them a higher interest rate, which is probably going to make them more likely to default. The, the expectation becomes somewhat self-fulfilling. And, and yes. I think that the more worrisome part about this are the assumptions that we make about humans. So you mentioned public choice, right? So public choice is meant to be purely descriptive, and it's a model which says, hey, bureaucrats are interested in, in, in maximizing their self-interest, and politicians are interested in maximizing their self-interest. And it's possible that these models themselves may have led to politicians becoming more self-interested. And some people argue that the economic way of looking at the world causes people to become more more selfish and more individualistic. I know the evidence is a little bit mixed, right? People talk about how economics majors behave differently in ultimatum games and, and so forth, and it's not clear whether that's a selection effect or, or a treatment effect. Mm-hmm. But do you think there is this broader impact about how the, kind of the economic view of the world undermines the social fabric in, in some way? Or is that overstating the impact of, of economics? I don't know. I think in public services, you know, the new public management approach, as it would be called in the public political science literature, has been counterproductive and has undermined intrinsic motivation. And that's because, you know, paradoxically enough, there is truth in the basic public choice idea that doctors and nurses and public servants are all humans too, and so they will respond to human incentives. If you then incentivize them by setting targets, like, you know, how many kids in their class get certain grades or how many people they pass through their hospital mm-hmm. in a certain number of hours, then then they'll respond to those incentives. So that loss of intrinsic motivation, I think, has probably happened. But that doesn't undermine the, the truth of the insight. And, you know, this makes the task of policy economics just much harder because you need to put yourself in your model and scrutinise yourself at the same time that you're scrutinising everything else. And it's surprising how often in in policy recommendations there's just even a basic lack of recognition that the people to whom you apply the policy will respond, (laughs) that it will change their incentives. One of the great examples is a behavioural economics one, and it's about the way that you change road layouts by ending the demarcation between where the pedestrians go and the bit where the cars drive, and so that makes drivers more cautious. And these experiments were tried in some cities, particularly in the Netherlands. They worked really well. And then people get used to it and uh-huh. revert to their old behaviours. It's, you know, it's the old risk compensation mechanism. And it applies here as much as it does anywhere else. It probably applies in the way that people adjust their behaviour as waves of COVID come and go. 
And it's a pretty basic lesson in policy analysis, but it seems to get forgotten so much of the time. Well, it seems like that kind of thing could be predicted, right, through experiments. You, you mentioned the role of the economist as kind of a, a lab technician. But, but on the other hand, you also talk about economics as something like Darwinian evolutionary theory or geology, where causation is something that's really very difficult to discover through experimentation. So what is it about causation that we can realistically expect to discover, and, and what of it is, is going to be more like geology, where we're, you know, we're basically just presenting models, and those models have to be convincing based on, on what we see and not what we actually discover through experimentation? I think for small, small questions or where you can triangulate evidence, then you, you can get a handle on causation. It gets harder the bigger the question you're tackling or the, the bigger the scale. In macroeconomics, I'm not sure that we will ever finally get causation any more than we'll ever know what the true underlying causes of the Second World War were. There will always be a debate about that. But you have to try to bring to bear as many different kinds of evidence as you, as you can. And economic history actually is a great source of identifying material for macroeconomics. But then there may be other types of questions, those classic policy questions like what should a tax rate be or uh, what is the effect of a particular intervention like introducing a regulation be, where you can get a much better handle on, on causation, on, on causal questions. And I don't want to stop asking big questions because it's hard, but I would like us as economists to pay more attention to other insights from other disciplines, from people who think differently to ourselves, you know, that basic intellectual hygiene thing of talking to people who disagree with you so that you understand why you why you might be wrong. But I suppose my ultimate dream is we manage to make economics consistent with the human sciences and so that what we learn is consistent with what biologists learn or geneticists learn or epidemiologists learn or sociologists and we should all as the human sciences be looking at each other to see are there contradictions there or can we learn something from the way that other people interested in the same questions are looking at the world? Well, you know, a lot of the folks that I talk to on this podcast, a lot of the economists in particular I talk to, they, they would agree with you and they would agree with Danny Roderick, uh, who says, to be a true economist, you know, you have to read a lot and you have to read from a lot of different disciplines. You have to read some biology, read psychology, read history, read political science. But this is not how you're trained as, as an economist. When you get trained, you, you go through this very narrow funnel where your reading is highly constrained and, and limited, and there is this thing which you refer to as mathiness. Is that inevitable? I mean, look, graduate school is graduate school. It's all about becoming highly specialized. It's all about understanding some little thing really, really, really well. I mean, is that unavoidable? Is that inconsistent with this idea of being highly interdisciplinary? How, how can you be both interdisciplinary and be a contributing specialist in your discipline? Well, I think the system is broken. I, you know, I do agree with you absolutely that if, as a graduate student, you have to focus in on a, a question that's manageable and you narrow down and you have to learn special skills, technical skills. But then we seem to keep the, the tram lines very narrow after graduate school as well. And early career researchers know that they need to publish a certain kind of article with certain kinds of technique in certain journals if they're going to get the jobs that they want and the promotions that they want. So that's then 
five or ten years of their intellectual career where they're having to stay as narrow as they were to get into and, and through graduate school. People better than me have written about the tyranny of the top five journals. A bunch of Nobel laureates have pointed it out. We don't seem to be able to get away from it, but it is a tyranny. I just think it's madness that departments want to hire people who've only published in, in five journals when it takes years and the competition is so stiff. And I've seen departments hire great people and then throw them away after three years because they've not met these artificial deadlines. It seems absolutely insane to me. It's pushing many people out of the academic profession because idealistic young people come to social sciences, including economics, often and stay in graduate school because they want to make the world better. They could have gone into the city or Wall Street and they haven't. And the idealism gets beaten out of them by having to operate in this way. I find the resistance to all but a, a certain kind of modelling and techniques particularly strange for a discipline that claims to be so empirical. I've started doing qualitative work using surveys, semi-structured interviews, natural language processing. And economists like the high-tech stuff, so they like anything to do with machine learning. Or if you program it in Python, that's fantastic. But they're really unkeen on interviews. And yet, you know, to go back to the causality question, if you want to identify what's happening in a market, going to talk to people who participate in the market is a great way to find out about it. And you have megabytes of data. It's just text. And you can analyse that in a very systematic way. So why the top journals are resistant to qualitative methods is just inconsistent. You use this term, mathiness, and, and you mentioned that when people are in the early stage of their career and they're encountering economics for the first time, uh, a lot of people are turned off by this. And so, you know, the core, core micro class will just push away a, a bunch of people. But isn't that, isn't that sort of the point, to force everyone to adopt this way of modeling and, and using a common language so that they can evaluate and, and test the, the different theories that, that people are generating. To, to what extent is this kind of a straw man? I think you, you mentioned that a lot of the critiques of economics are, are straw men. Is, is that a straw man to say that economics is too mathematical? The, the mathiness term is Paul Romer's originally, and I'm all in favor of mathematics and very much against the mathiness. It, it's, you have to have the mathematics. What's the difference? The what's, what's the difference? It, the, the kind of you know advanced topology which is really not very good mathematics as opposed to good economics. There are, there's no interest in economic intuition in that. And learning different fixed-point theorems so you can prove the existence of general equilibrium in different ways, you know, really, what is, what is the point of that? That's the mathiness of it. But, you know, using... If you're doing a marginal analysis using calculus or using algebra to set out the logic, it's really about logic of your model and test for internal consistency. I don't have any problem with that at all. So can you imagine a day where someone could get a PhD in economics without you know, a huge amount of math? It's, it's hard to imagine in, in today's world. I think it's still hard to imagine. I, I think if you want to do economics, you have to have quite a, a, an appetite to do some mathematics. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that we're seeing a new political economy emerge. Now, when I think of political economy, I think back the old authors of political economy texts from the 19th century, it wasn't highly mathematical. It was very much almost a, a literary discipline, something closer to what we might think of today as sociology or anthropology or, or political science. Do you think that a new political economy would, would look substantially different from 
what we see today in economics, what would that look like? Your argument is that economics is changing and it's evolving. Where is it headed? What's it going to look like in 10 years? Well, I'm thinking of things like reintroducing questions of economic welfare and distribution, and they can't be purely mathematical questions. Or to give another example, the dynamics of online markets mean that they tip. You know, platforms grow very slowly, but then at a certain point, they grow very quickly and they become the dominant player. And you've got a Schumpeterian competition if, if the competition is possible. And in those circumstances, if you're a competition regulator and you're looking at a, an acquisition or an abuse of dominance in European legislation, then you're, any, any, any decision that you make, either to let the acquisition go ahead or to stop it, is going to shape the market. So your decision will shape market structure. And this is very different from kind of old style competition analysis where you, you take a market structure as given and you define its boundaries and you're looking at a short term time horizon. So the dynamics mean it has to be about what kind of economy do we want? Do we want one where this big American company comes in and takes over this particular sector? Or do we want to stop that happening and we'll wait and see, and maybe a British or a European company will grow to scale in our market instead. So that's that has to be political. And I think it is changing, but I also still uh, see that there's quite a lot of resistance among economists who think of themselves as plumbers or engineers, who, who step back from industrial policy, as, as that might be called. So I'm with, I'm with Danny Roderick on that. Yeah, well, you also mentioned that digital is different, right? And And I think, you know, there are certainly... Folks in economics that would say, well, all we're seeing is changes in the cost function, information is cheaper, right? I mean, the argument is that it's more continuous than discontinuous. But I think you sort of fall down the discontinuous side and say, hey, what's happening right now in, in the world is, is, is so dramatically different that we need a completely different set of tools to, to understand it. How much of it is just the more things change, the, the more they stay the same? And, and why should we think that the changes that we're seeing out there in, in the world and the economy are, are sufficiently disruptive that they're going to cause a, a disruption in, in the social sciences and the way in which we interact with the world. When I got interested in digital in the mid-1990s, I talked to a very eminent economist about it and about the implication of moving from dial-up internet to broadband, or, you know, which was on the horizon. And, and he said to me, well, we know how to handle that in our models. It's just right. a small reduction in transactions costs. So what would be different? And here we are spending four hours a day online with a completely different market landscape than we used to have. So I am in the discontinuous camp and it changes market structure. It's led to polarization in firm profits and productivity with a top 5% pulling away market power on both sides of the market, including the labour market, and the different way that we need to analyse employment conditions and wages in monopsy, monopsy markets. And it changes thinking about economic welfare, and it means that we need to understand intangibles far better than we have so far. So we've got a, a, a glimpse of intangible value through stock market valuations for listed companies, but pretty much everything is intangible now. One of my favourite papers ever was by Zvi Grilikas in 1994 in the American Economic Review. He taught me a bit of econometrics back in the day and was wonderful. And the paper said, we've got some measurement problems because more and more of the economy is becoming hard to measure. And he found that the hard to measure bits of the economy had grown 
from just around a half in 1945 to more like 60% being hard to measure. And I would say we're now at 70, 75% hard to measure because the concepts don't fit. You know, I, I work on productivity. What is, a, what is productivity when there is no product? You're not going to count the productivity of a management consultant by the number of slides in their PowerPoint deck. So how do you do it? Yeah. Well, and I think we, we're going to have to obviously come up with new metrics. But you mentioned that in some economics departments, the divide between new ways of thinking and old ways of thinking have been so severe that they've even resulted in splits in people who call themselves heterodox economists. Is this a thing or is this just a blip? Are, are there certain ways of thinking that, that economics is just so resistant to that there's going to have to be kind of a, a new type of economist that's going to detach themselves and, and create a new discipline? Or are you fundamentally optimistic that economics is a big enough tent that it's going to uh, evolve to incorporate all of these new insights? I think economics will change. A lot of the energy is going in that direction. I, I'm less sure whether all economics departments themselves will be able to change because they're trapped in a bad equilibrium. And it's hard to bring about that kind of system change. So they might stick to their top five journals and and narrow approaches to small questions. So I, I don't know how that will play out. I, I find it interesting that people who call themselves heterodox economists are just so angry about everything that economists do and, and you know can't see any of the good things that we've been talking about. And I don't identify myself as heterodox, but I guess if you talk to many mainstream economists, they would certainly put me on the edge of the tent, if not outside the tent. Well, I think the title of this book, The Soulful Science, if you covered the bottom part and you asked people what this book is about, very few people would think it's about <laughs> economics. <laughs> but I think you do a great job of explaining why economics does now have a soul. And it's thanks in part to the work of you, Diane. So thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Gods and Monsters, Soulful Science, GDP, so many wonderful books. Appreciate for joining me. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.